This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me is reviewer and writer Will Cox. Hey, Will. Hey, Flick. How are you? I'm doing good. A bit sweaty, but I'm here. Yeah, yeah. It's like that. Yep. <laughs> and making his Primal Screen debut, filmmaker Jack Ralph. Hey, Jack. Hello. It's good to see you. Good to see you all. We're going to be talking about Peter Jackson's new documentary series, The Beatles Get Back, and Denis Villeneuve's uh, Dune. Um, but to help us do a little bit more of a deeper dive into the rather complex universe of Frank Herbert's Dune and this recent film adaptation is writer Chris Dye. Welcome to Primal Screen, Chris. Having me, Flick. My pleasure. Um, Chris, your article, What Draws Us to the Reactionary Darkness of Dune, was published in Jacobin's magazine earlier this year. Uh, we shared your article on our social media accounts last week and, and listeners can head over to our Facebook, Insta or Twitter page if they'd like to read it. Now, before we get into the film adaptation of Dune, let's first talk about the man who actually created this story, Frank Herbert. In your article, you describe him as being preoccupied with Native American culture and suffering, but that, that was really filtered through um, what his family called his, mis- his self-conception of as a great white expert. Um, you also describe Herbert as frighteningly homophobic, equating homosexuality with violence and the collapse of society. Look, he sounds like a very complex and troubled man. Uh, Can you give our listeners a bit more context about who Frank Herbert was? Yeah, sure. I mean, full full disclaimer: I'm a massive Dune fan. (laughs) So before the (laughs) I think before I get isn't it Spicehead assassinated by the fan base or something? (laughs) Is that the official Um, term, Spicehead? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. Um, yeah, I mean, he's a pretty interesting character. I think every account that you hear of him that's not his own books, which are obviously wildly popular, paint him to be pretty much an out-of-control egomaniac, <laughs> uh, very much like to kind of hold court, but that's not so unusual for writers, I suppose. His political background, though, is actually really interesting. His family, uh, his grandparents were part of a, a utopian socialist commune that split off from Eugene Debs' Social Democracy of America party in the late 19th century. Uh, And they lived in a little, uh, yeah, utopian commune called Brotherhood, which lasted a reasonably long time for a socialist utopian commune, (laughs) uh, but not forever. And uh, the family ended up moving elsewhere and uh, I think his dad became a patrolman, like a cop. So he's got a kind of mix of family backgrounds. His cousin on his mum's side is Joseph McCarthy, the very famous anti-communist senator in America. Uh, And Herbert himself was a Republican, a diehard Republican, 
uh, and worked as an advisor and a speechwriter to a series of Republican uh, Senate and I think Congress candidates too, definitely Senate though. Yeah, wow. Um, it's kind of interesting hearing that because I'm now, I've, you know, I saw June the other day, so I'm now just thinking about all of these key scenes where I'm like, yeah, I can I can kind of see that inspiration there or that, that backgrounding, particularly in the political speech writing for some of those scenes. Um, now, look, there's been such a massive build-up to June um, and it's finally opened here in Australia uh, just at the start of this month um, and it's doing, you know, predictably exceptionally well at the box office and I saw it at IMAX and, look, there wasn't, there wasn't one spare seat in the theatre and, like, even that front row where you need, like, a neck brace if you sit there. Um, Chris, your article kind of speculates on on why these elements of June, like the political cynicism, this white saviour mythology, uh, ecological catastrophism, this lurid orientalism, like why all those elements are still kind of remain relevant or significant today. I'm just thinking, what what is it about this like 60s sci-fi series um, that we're still connecting with in 2021? Yeah, I think it, it, that would be also a good question to ask about the 1960s, why people were so into it and why it remained so popular since then. I mean, there's a huge disconnect between the politics of Frank Herbert and the politics of the audience of the franchise. I mean, the counterculture kids that took it up in the 60s weren't Republicans for the most part uh, <laughs> and weren't uh, so uh, cynical, I suppose, about the idea of collectives and and collective action and struggle and things like that. In fact, a lot of the students that were reading it in the 1960s um, directly were clashing up with Herbert himself, who was a strike breaker at a university. Um, yeah, so that, he was kind of directly in conflict sometimes with uh, his audiences. I think the, the magic of the book and the magic of the film and the magic of the franchise in general is that, like all kind of mystical right-wing things you can project anything you want onto it so fascists love it a lot of communists love it socialists love it liberal democrats love it like lady gaga likes it um it's you know uh stephen colbert people like that it's a, it's like the full spectrum of politics is obsessed with the franchise and they all feel a really uh incredible sense of ownership over it too so I think it's a, you could ask that question about any era, but I suppose today in the way Villeneuve's tried to pitch it is the environmental aspect, the ecological issues and things like that, which Frank Herbert was kind of obsessed with, but like all of his obsessions, he was obsessed in a very strange way. Yeah, it's it's interesting, like you said, having that disconnect and how much the text of the film in this example doesn't really belong to the author at all when you have like these very, very uh, interpretations and, and fandom that is anchored to very passionately to politics. So, yeah, it's kind of it's curious digging deeper into Herbert's background. But then also, you know, this is we are now talking about the film adaptation that Villeneuve has done and so many other filmmakers have attempted this text and, you know, I, won't, I suppose it's just it's got a very complex uh, and troubled history um, in itself. Um, now, the, with this most recent adaptation, um, you were talking about how Villeneuve has taken a slightly different tact or, or emphasis, and that's on the ecological imperative. In fact, he describes it as a call for action for, for us to change things, specifically for the youth. We need to change our ways of living. And he says that we need to change our way of dealing with nature and the world. And that takes a lot of courage and ethics. And I think June is a call for that. So, yeah, it's a really sharp 
difference or, or, or kind of a, a very um, very obvious and very um, underlined point that Villeneuve is trying to make in this film adaptation. Um, what do you think are some of the other changes that you're seeing in Villeneuve's treatment of the story? I think he's been super clever. I mean, he's, that's been his line in all of the publicity interviews for it, and I think Timothy Chalamet's echoed that same line about, you know, a young generation ste- stepping up to do what it has to do or something like that. They've, they've kind of, all the cast, I think, have parroted that, that same line. And it makes sense. It's a good selling point. But I don't think anyone's walking away from the film, which I loved, by the way, but I don't think anyone's walking away from it, you know, joining a protest group or something like that. I think he's been very clever and kept it in line with the book in that it's um, empty, like it's blank. You can project anything you want onto it. Uh, It could be, um, you know, a testament to like how strong women are or it could be like a kind of attack on the sneakiness of women, just like the book is, like you you can make it whatever you want to make it. And I think he's been, he's done that so well. It's exactly the same vague, mystical, um, weird beast that everyone feels like they can control. (laughs) That's so interesting that you kind of, yeah, I was trying to put my finger on how the visual space is used because there's there is there is a sense of it almost comes across as an art house film in the sense of a strong emphasis on visual storytelling rather than what we're your, perhaps more used to in sci-fis which is very like prescriptive storytelling where we're trying to set up this world and you know the establishing of that goes into the script and you're right there is this kind of openness to it and I feel like Villeneuve is that's very common territory for him in general but do you think it takes away do you think the other spice heads or <laughs> Dune fans such as yourself will will enjoy it do you think that there'll be enough of that same um because because you've got the adaptation is taking its own creative license with this do you think there's going to be um yeah people who feel disappointed in it I think, I mean, maybe, maybe some of the, like, extreme far-right fans of uh, of the franchise, and there are a lot of them. There's uh, quite a few people have written a lot about how the fascist far-right is obsessed with Dune. Um, I think there might be elements that they don't like about it. For example, I think they've very consciously removed all of the worst of the homophobic stuff. They've taken out a lot of the sexual violence, not all of it, but most of it, um, and I think there's possibly a big part of the fascist audience that might not be too keen on that because they have this obsession with the idea, like Frank Herbert did himself, that uh, homosexuality is linked to sort of, you know, imperial decline and the decadence of the West and stuff like that. So maybe they'll be disappointed about that. But I think in general, in a general sense, the far right will be as happy as the far <laughs> left would be and the centre would be because it's... it's it's anything you want it to be in a very in a very cool way. Yeah, I don't think I've ever thought so much about um, our far right spectators <laughs> on primal screen. In fact, this is probably the most we've discussed this. Um, it's been fascinating, kind of doing this deeper dive because I think that whenever. Um, there's going to be listeners who who, have, who are coming to June for the first time who haven't read the book and are seeing this as a film in its own right. And it's so interesting kind of tracing that history back and that sense of authorship and politics that are brought into it, and especially when a text, like you said, is coming from the 60s and then the way it was interpreted then and then the fact that at several, um, you know, over the last couple of decades we're trying. there's been all these female uh, filmmakers and creatives trying to 
get back into this text and bring it back into the current day. And there's obviously enough universal topics and openness in the text that they can dive into it. Um, if you've just tuned in and you've been, um, you're wondering what's happening, uh, <laughs> we're speaking with uh, writer Chris Dyett about his article, What Draws Us to the Reactionary Darkness of June, which is featured in Jacobin magazine. And we've also shared it on our socials if you want to give it a read. Uh, Dennis, uh, Denny Villeneuve's film adaptation of June is currently playing at all major cinemas and we'll be reviewing June after this song. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. We spoke with Chris Dyett uh, about his article, What Draws Us to the Reactionary Darkness of June? And he gave us uh, a little more insight into the creator of June, Frank Herbert, and, and kind of how the lasting legacy of um, this story today and how it plays out. Uh, so now let's get into uh, Denis Villeneuve's much-anticipated filmic adaption. There's something happening to me. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dreamed them? Yes. That was June. Uh, Jacko, for any listeners who were, for whatever reason, MIA over the last um, year and somehow have not heard about this film, <laughs> what can you tell us about June? Oh, I hated every synopsis I found of this film online. It's just like, it's like <laughs> no, you didn't, you didn't say this or didn't say that. So I've, uh, I've written up this about what I think June is more or less about. Yeah. Uh, so. Dune follows Paul Atreides, who is a skillfully trained young man born into a great destiny beyond his understanding. He and his family of the House Atreides must travel to the most dangerous planet in the universe, Arrakis, under the directions or order of the Emperor to take over stewardship and control production of the drug Spice, of which value is held highest in the galaxy and is only found in the desert planet Arrakis. As house rivalries, combined with the high religious Fremen of the desert, exploit into conflict over the spice, a geopolitical science fiction unravels on a grand scale, yet one that is full of introspection. That is beautiful. I feel like I the task of summing up a sci-fi for me is like I'm always like, did I actually watch the film if I can't remember any of the names of the planets or the people? Or, <laughs> that was a good Especially job. Especially this one because there's so much there's so much plot. Yes. Yes. There is. But yet it does not feel like the it doesn't feel heavy-handed in ways where usually when that happens in a sci-fi, I'm very forgiving because I'm like, yeah, they've got to build up the world, you know? Um, no, that was, that was amazing. And like, I suppose, you know, for most people, it's, it's such a, it's such a big text. Uh, Jack, you're mm. a, you're a big fan of the book as well. Is that right? Yeah, I can I see them in frame. The <laughs> yeah. I couldn't give him the book by my dad and he was sort of a bit of a hippie back in the sixties. So he would have been a big fan of it then. And, um, yes, yeah, so I read it when I was a teenager and I thought it was very strange, but I really liked it. Um, you know, I found it a very weird book at the time and I reread it before the film came out. 
And um, yeah, it's hearing Chris talk before and doing a bit more like in-depth research. It is really interesting what I thought the book was about and then but what, you know, what you can actually put onto the story yourself. Um, and I found that really interesting, like kind of revisiting the story with that sort of in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I actually love that, though, about the power of film just to for people to bring their own interpretations and directors who allow for that as well. And, I mean, I know Villeneuve has talked a lot about in interviews, like we said before, about talking about the um, ecological story at the core of this, but that's only one thread. And so, yeah, I think there is a lot to break into this film and read into it and, and kind of tear it apart. So I feel like it's still there's still so much to unpack in it. I was really intrigued by the fact of Villeneuve being in, involved with this film because, um, you know, some of his earlier films, I feel like he's just he's got a really interesting touch and I think the combination between this really heavy and um, heavy text and kind of where it could go, um, he's really well paired with it. And I, I think a part of that maybe has to do with the fact that he's showing it rather than telling it, like we said before. Yeah, and, and the book is really interesting because there's so much inner thought happening. Like the characters are constantly thinking in their heads. And so even like in the in the movie, they do it like little hand signals to each other and he just puts captions on screen for that, which I thought was really tasteful. Yes. And actually just, just nailed it because I was very curious to see how that came across. Um, and also just it just feels like very 70s classic cinema by showing like, you know, you see this repeated shot of a knife or you see this repeated shot of – you know, overlaid sort of imagery, but it's not heavily CGI necessarily. It's just it's just kind of that sort of classic image, image, you know, sort of thing. And I found that really almost like what um, Jarodowski might have done in his Absolutely. version, mixed yes. with sort of Hollywood of today, um, which I loved. The big yes. sci-fi imagery of it is beautiful and there's nothing really like it, I don't think, at the moment. Um, things like the dragonfly helicopters. Yeah. I'm not a. I'm not a. Um, a, a, a dune. A, a thopter. A what? A thopter. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. A thopter. Yeah. Yeah. The parasol. You know that the guys carrying yeah. around the hot air balloons, the twin moons. It's all very, very beautiful. It's the stuff of old sci-fi pulp book covers. Totally. Um, yeah. But I always just used to pick up the book, the books, and never actually read them. Um, so the imagery itself is the thing that that really engages me about it yeah there's so much plot but it doesn't feel layered on um even though there's quite a bit of exposition as well it still feels like there's quite a bit of space in there somehow yeah and i think oh sorry you go oh i was just gonna say quickly because they jump around between a few planets but i think what he does really well is he just each one is so distinct like you see paul open with rain on the window you see you know june sand harkonnens on their planet is just grim it's just very grim so it's like i feel like the the imagery that jumps makes it very clear as to where we are at any one point without Mm. being like too much text on screen and yeah i I think that was done really well yeah that was the um the cinematographer is greg fraser who is an australian cinematographer um i was listening to an interview with him where he was talking about the decision 
of the colour for the sand and how that needed to contrast with the with the sky and using um, this kind of light um, yellow but not white because that would allow for the spice to come across as this like gold sparkle colour to it. And I think that like you were saying, Jack, they're able to communicate those shifts in time and place and actually locate. you're able to locate yourself as a spectator through the cinematography, which is is how it should work. But sometimes I think there's a less emphasis placed on all those different layers. And you can always tell when it's not done well. And in, you know, in June, it's done exceptionally well. They've obviously thought through. And it's almost, it sounds a bit strange, but I always feel like there's a pairing back in this film. And I feel like Villeneuve has done that in other films where he's been able to think about what is at the core of this and what do I need to communicate in order for people to get this scene? And I think he does break it down into very um, very beautiful um, emotional connections between the characters and working out, okay, this is the tension in this scene. And what I really loved was the family dynamic in this film and also the the boyishness of, of Paul. And I think as the central character... Um, I think you really get a sense of usefulness to this film and the um, both that desire to be, be beyond go beyond your parents and and to break free, but then also that responsibility and that sense of duty that comes through. And I remember I read an interview with Villeneuve and he was talking about how much he loved June. He read it as a as a boy, and that's what he wanted. He wanted to sort of he wanted to basically think of what he would have wanted to see as a as a teenager, which I definitely pick up on in this film. Yeah, I think he was saying, he just seemed to have a line in one interview and he's saying, Paul finds freedom in another culture, essentially. So he breaks free from his family mm. by finding the freedom in the culture of the Fremen, um, which, you know, is is interesting in this in our political time and our sort of our social time where there's a lot of, you know, appropriation going yes. on. And it's very interesting seeing it depicted in Dune um, in, you know, in a fictional way, but it doesn't, I don't know. It's, it's a fine line though, isn't it? Cause I, I've got to say, yeah. we, we don't actually see any of that though. Really. We don't see him finding, um, finding himself in this other culture. Cause that's end of part one. Spoilers. Sorry. This is, this is part, <laughs> you know, there's two, at least two, right? There's the yes, second yeah. one to come. Just got green lit. Yeah. And do you think, uh, do you think, Jack, that there's going to be more after that? Because, I mean, this has been – I mean, how many books have you got in this pile next to you? How many June <laughs> books are there? So there's – okay, so I did I did the – I put a bookmark where the, the first – so this part one basically finishes smack what? bang halfway. Halfway, the yeah. So – and then you get to actually the second book and it, it actually jumps forwards in time. I won't go into it, but, like, the next book jumps forwards quite a, a significant time. Um, but the first book ends in such a – not Hollywood way. So I'm just, I actually don't know where the second part is going to finish, whether they're going to kind of take a bit of the second book from somewhere or um, it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see what they do with that. Yeah, it's, That's it's, 2023. It's like two years away. I know. I was going to say the weight that we have is going to kill us. <laughs> um, if it's not apparent, I mean, I really, really enjoyed this film uh, immensely and I think it's because there's so much to kind of dive into and explore. One thing I was wondering with as we kind of as people, more people watch it and we hear more responses to it, I was interested to look out for any um, – 
readings of this that talk about cultural appropriation. I think that it, the film treads a really fine line in both creating a sense of mysticism in the Fremen, which is part of the story, but I don't think it ever tips too far in the wrong direction. Will, what do you think about this? I'm not sure. Do you do you kind of feel like it, it captures that or...? It's, it's all extremely vague, mm. I think, the, the, the yeah. depiction of this. But I do think it's a little bit, it, it's this um, exotic, eastern, yeah. vaguely eastern uh, uh, race, you know, yeah. or religion or, 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 or something that I'm not sure. I mean, it's a science fiction film, so you can, you know, they're making their own culture, but it's clearly very based on uh, a, a, a 1960s man's perspective of anything east of about Greece being the exotic other. Totally. Um, yeah. Which I wasn't very, I, you know, who really piles that on is Hans Zimmer, who I did think lay it on way too thick at times. And every time you get a cut of someone in a veil with mysterious eyes, he just plays some vaguely ethnic music. And I just think, come on, it's 2021. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is happening here? Do you think, um, yeah, I, I know that Villeneuve like, has talked a lot about the fact that he was so worried about that and I, I wonder if it's just that. Not that worried. No, no, but, but, but in terms of I, I want, like he just, it's sometimes that, you know, you don't know what you don't know and if there's not that consultation perhaps that is going to happen where people are like, you know, and it almost requires multiple viewings for people to be like, um, this isn't cool <laughs> or this yeah, might. Consultation, consultation with who? I mean, because there's, it's not a particular It doesn't uh, specify. Or... No, it doesn't specify. I just think that it would be interesting to, uh, like I know there was a lot of, um, I suppose is that like you're with a film adaptation, you're always going to be like you've got this responsibility, like Chris was saying, to this fandom, this very broad fandom in June's case, and then you've also got the creative licence of what you're going to do with it and why is this story important still in 2021. So I, I don't know. My feeling was this this film gave some really interesting shifts in characters that I wasn't expecting and narrative changes I haven't actually read the book I was going to read it before the film came out and then it just was getting closer and closer to it and I was like I don't want to watch it too and close the book to got it. bigger and bigger <laughs> it, <did. Yeah. laughs> it honestly just swelled in size I was like, yeah I was like no nah, I can't do this um but I yeah I think there's a lot in this I I'm curious to hear different takes on it though because I think visually it's really beautiful I'm excited for part two as well um yeah that was my take on it um, yeah, and I think, you were saying before, Flick, that, I'm sorry, go on. Well, I was going to quickly say, I think where the changes are different in the book, you can see why he's brought things forward from the from later in the book and maybe like um, he's changed uh, Dr. Kynes, the ecologist, into a female rather than a, an, in the book Dr. Kynes is a male. So I think because there's just so many male characters, mm. apart from the Bene Gesseri, that it's just it, that was a very clever little shift Um for a second, I was like, "Oh wow!" And then it's just like, "No, that's that's clever." And I think what he's where he's changed the text makes sense for me, the more modern audience, mm. and actually brings more into the first part, you know, to leave whatever part two is as well. Actually, the characterization of the female 
um, char- the characters, the female characters in this film are, are quite interesting in themselves. I actually really love um, Charlotte Rampling in this film. I think she's got this, you know, we're talking before about voice. Her voice is used so well in these scenes and I, I find it really interesting when in threatening scenes kind of a whisper or, you know, a whisper to a shout is used or that kind of transition. It's really beautiful. There's a lot of texture to those conversations beyond what is just being said, you know, the actual voices themselves. Mm. It's clearly been it, a lot's had to change to adapt it to a film, which is always going to happen, and maybe that's why I, the David Lynch version doesn't work because it's probably too is it too slavish to the original? Um, I don't know. It's, it's just weird. It's chaos. It doesn't <laughs> work on any yeah, level. That's another but, um, hour of discussion, Will. <laughs> but it, but it, um, it it's it really has been brought up to date with the the language of a contemporary blockbuster as well, you know, because obviously a lot of them are copying from this anyway. Like there's a lot of Star Wars in this. Totally. In, right at the beginning yeah. there's the hero pilot and the whiny psychic kid and he's like, I want to go out there. It's like, I don't think you're up to this kid. It's tough out there. And he's a chosen one. And I was like, oh, okay, this is this is the beginning of Empire Strikes Back. But um, it, it does feel at times a little bit too big contemporary sci-fi franchise, you know, like a, do you, do you think so? Or does no, it I mean, lose its I'm identity it. a little bit? No, I'm there for it. I actually think that it, it kind of is reshaping it in the right way. It feels very, very kind of imaginative in that, in that visual space. And I think that's the real strength of it is that you can then like kind of project what you like or kind of read into those things. And I think they've got, they've left enough space for them to sort of work out what they're going to do with that part too. Well, maybe they already have, but it feels like it's there's it's kind of nice and heavy with ideas and they haven't boxed themselves in too much with this story. That's my feeling. Um, Dennis Villeneuve's, uh, Denny Villeneuve's Dune is currently playing at all major and independent cinemas. Um, but honestly, don't be cheeky and download this one. It really needs to be seen on the big screen. Uh, you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford and I'm joined tonight um, by guest reviewers Jack Ralph. Uh, Will, this has literally just come out on Disney+. Plus. What can you tell us about the Beatles' Get Back? Well, I was going to say after the June discussion that's about a young man named Paul born into destiny beyond (laughs) his understanding. Uh, (laughs) But, um, okay, well, so in 1969 the Beatles reconvened in the studio record another album, which was their 11th, to be their 11th in seven years. And this time they invited filmmaker Michael Lindsay Hogg to document the process from writing to rehearsals, culminating in their first live show in several years. But it didn't quite go to plan. Uh, And the finished film, Let It Be, released in 1970, was a pretty dour experience showing the band bickering, flailing and on the verge of breaking up. Uh, 51 years later, Peter Jackson has been given the keys to the Beatle vault 60 hours of footage from this three-week period and from that he's built Get Back, an expansive eight-hour documentary that reassesses this phase in the career of the most discussed uh, band in history, uh, probably, definitely. Uh, yeah. Flick, were you were you swept up in all eight hours of this? I actually I haven't got through all eight hours, Will. I was like, well, at least I won't give away any spoilers, I suppose. But um, I totally got swept up in this. I I find this curious because it kind of it fits into style wise. 
with how Peter Jackson's approached this. And people might be kind of thinking it's going to be something completely different when they hear that Jackson is um, directing this. It's almost like slow cinema that we're watching and there is just such a, a very delicate touch on the found footage and just this sense of very little um, manipulation. They do even start each each of the series with saying, you know, we've tried to keep the conversation and content and what's happening in the scene as honest to what was happening at the time as possible. But the documentary, it's kind of, that question of... Um, the question of truth is really fascinating because there are conversations that Paul McCartney heard for the first time because they were playing it through. They had like hidden cameras, uh, hidden microphones in some situations. They had, um, they basically, Jackson was able to capture the sound of, so, sorry, to set up the scene. So like you said, you've got the Beatles in this huge recording studio and they are being filmed during this whole time. And for the filmmakers at that time, they were obviously wanting to capture this authentic uh, interaction between the band members. You know, there's so much hype around them. They wanted to get this sense of intimacy. But for the guys in the band, they were like, well, we don't want them dropping into, the, you know, listening to every bit of conversation. So they basically turned up their amps. So they drown out to so their, their um, drama over the top of yeah. their conversation. Yeah. yeah. Their audition becomes unlistenable. So what Jackson's done is been able to get that exact sound and um, erase it from the recording. So there's conversations that wouldn't otherwise even be audible, um, which is just so amazing, just as a technical feat. And then when you're thinking about the conversations we're listening to, which is the creation of some of the most well-known songs of all time, it's fascinating. Like, I mm -hmm. cannot get enough of this. I, I'm going to go home and watch some more of it. I honestly feel like it's such a fascinating concept such a fascinating subject and just even the technical side is is just amazing. Um, Jacko, I know you're a big Beatles fan, so how is this for you? I think what you were saying before, like, about how slow it is, is almost like a bit of respect to the Beatles but also the fans. Like, because when you start watching it, you're like, oh, here we go, and then it's like end of day one. And you're like, oh, what? It's been – that's just day one and you see how many days are to go and you're just yeah. like – Great! Here we go. Like this is <laughs> I this love is, that. Here we go. Yeah, and, and it's it's it is incredible to see. It's quite surreal to see these moments that you know so well, and then you you hear the take or you see the picture, and you're like, "That's the that's the take," or "That's the picture that mm. makes the album." And it's like, it's it's almost like it's happening right now, but obviously it isn't. Um, so yeah, I, I just I just love that, it. That's Oops. a really interesting thing about the Beatles because the time frame is very. Full disclosure, I'm like a, a huge Beatles fan as well and I've been pretty obsessed with the, the studio period of three or four years of their career for a very long time. But the time frame is is really difficult to get your head around because um, somewhere in my notes I've actually got got a lot of the time frame down. Yeah, here we go. Six weeks before this, the White Album came out. Mm. 18 months before Sgt Pepper and three years before this they had those mop haircuts and they were on the road singing Twist and Shout. You know, it's, it's so compressed yeah. and it's really hard to get your head around that. And yeah. Beatles fans know, you know, oh, that day is when they recorded the first take of this or the second take of this. But we've never seen this level of detail, you know. Yeah. Um, and seeing it all come to life is a kind of alchemy, you know. Mm. And I'm not sure if that's because they're amazing players or because we're so familiar with the material that seeing them sort of conjure something like that we've long, you know, we're very familiar with out of thin air 
seems like a magic trick. I think it's both, though. I think that it is. it does feel um, magical, those moments when they're like, actually, if we get rid of this and do this, this will, you know, have this effect. And you hear it and you're like, yeah, that's the finished product. But I actually think that they show also the frustration and that sense of trial and error that anyone, regardless of what creative process you're involved in, I think so many people can relate to that creative process and seeing it on screen is so magical. Like it's kind, it actually really feels cathartic seeing it and being like, well, they didn't know what they were doing half the time either. So <laughs> it made me feel good. Um, yeah, Jack, you, you're, you both, actually both of you are involved in the music industry and putting things out. Like, you know, Will, you're, you're the front man of Dazzle Ships and Jack, you've done a whole heap of work on, on doing music videos for bands. So you must have been able to relate to this quite heavily. Oh, it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, and what, well, on what you're saying before, it's also then when you see like Paul, he's like, what if we do this? And you start seeing this line that isn't in the final song. You're like, Paul, no, like that's not. Like, that's not, that doesn't happen. But you have to, like, sit back and, like, restrain yourself and, um, yeah, and really kind of, like, let, let it wash over you and, and, and just be like, no, this is the process. And it's and it's, it's kind of quite inspiring because they are kind of in turmoil, especially in part one. Totally. And you're like, these guys have no chance in hell of doing anything and they're as frustrated as I might be or someone else might be when they're making something. But they're the Beatles. But that really captures part one is very is a bit of a slog sometimes because mm. it's so it's quite grim. But um, it really captures that frustration of being in a a band practice and nothing's happening. I mean, just like come on, stop playing while I'm trying to talk to you, you know. <laughs> but um, and Paul being extremely pushy, um, uh, which you know I can relate to. It also recaps. Really, I was going to say it recasts Yoko's role oh. in you know that mythology around her breaking up the band, and you just see it, her like reading a newspaper and like you know it, snacking it on a pastry. That whole narrative, <laughs> and we've got that bit with Paul. You know, people are always just like, oh, the tension between Yoko and the rest of the band. But here you've got Paul saying, "It's so stupid. Like they're, they're just in, they're in love. It's really nice. Like we, we can't get in the way of that." And then he says, "Oh, it's going to be so stupid. In fifty years, people are going to say that the band's split up because Yoko sat on an amp." <laughs> like that is exactly what people are saying, and it is fifty years later. Yeah, and those people are wrong because Yoko is a is a, a brilliant uh, artist in her own right. I don't think she ever gave a shit enough to try and break no. up. The and also, I think there's a huge amount of respect for the creative process, and she understands it. And mm. actually, when you you're introduced to Linda McCartney later on, and she's taking photos of the band, and I think it was really beautiful. There's a real respect there, and and just creating this very fertile space for ideas to be thrown about and challenged. And you get that comes mm. across, and also the humour. They are so oh. they're so funny and cheeky. I loved it. They're insanely funny. There's so many uh, quotable, quotable bits in there. Some of which can't be said on on the air, um, which is probably the funniest bits. But uh, uh, yeah, I, I've always thought they were very funny. But it's just amazing to see John in in, in full flight. You know, just being uh, a ridiculously funny person. Well, then I also love that he's um, he's keeps because this is the same time which I didn't realize is the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, and they're yeah. like, "Would you do that intro?" And I'm like, and then he keeps just being like, "And now the you know," and he keeps just in, every day introducing the Rolling Stones, and it's just yeah, it, it's pretty hilarious. It, that's and then they talk about I think Martin Luther King's speech at one point, and it's just like, oh my god, this is like happening around this, and it's just such a huge time for all these events. 
the way so, that well, Jackson contextualizes it in this in the day is really interesting. Like oh, there's a bit in part one where they're all just idly sitting around chatting. I think George is saying he watched the the science fiction anthology show Out of the Unknown the night before, and he's just describing what happened in the episode like you would just to a mate. And it keeps cutting back to the TV guide and whatever surviving images from that episode there are. And it's just, it's fascinating to see it all playing out and, and in also, context in real time. Yeah, mm. yeah. I loved, I loved that whole structure of the, the um, calendar days and you get that sense of progression as well. Um, but also, like, just their youthfulness. Like, you just have to remind yourself they were in their 20s. Like, this is, it's amazing that there were so many significant events. Like you were saying, Will, about the being able to place that documentary within that time frame, you're like, that is wild that that was their life and this was happening. And I'm actually kind of – I feel like there's – the Beatles as a subject matter, there's so much work done into their story in other documentaries that follow this really traditional side, side – style, sorry. So I love that Jackson is just like, no, that's not what we want to see. We want to kind of do this deep dive where we're just seeing them as – this process, this, these artists and, and how they come about with these songs and just as people, you get a really strong sense of it. I, I can't imagine another documentary that's captured that for me. Can, can you imagine just for a second if this was like a normal music documentary and it kept cutting, cutting back to Bono in sunglasses inside for some reason <laughs> saying, oh, the Beatles were really important and without the Beatles there would be no U2. <laughs> can you imagine like every other band, that's, that's yeah, what happens. You totally. get Bono, turns up. Says that they're good. Okay, he says thanks, his piece. Yeah, so true. And it's like you don't need to say that. You don't need to talk because that's often what music documentaries are tasked with. This idea of okay, for people who are unfamiliar, here is the you know chronology chronology of their coming to fame and what happened. And we kind of already know that. Even if you're not a massive Beatles fan, most people know those kind of really key markers. So what we're really interested in here is the the band themselves and that cre- the music and how it was created. And mm. I think for musicians there's probably so much to get out of this and, and honestly knowledge being passed on through this documentary, which is a tremendous effort. Anyway, sorry, I just realised we, we probably <laughs> um, I've, I've rambled a bit about this film. Have you, have, you all, have you both watched it to the end or are you still going? No, okay. no I've, I've only watched part two. I've, okay. I've finished part one and two. Mm. Um, that's about seven hours, though. But I didn't want to rush it because I was like, I just, yeah. so, I heard someone saying it's like a drug and everyone just wants more of it. So it's like you don't really want to have too much of it at once because it's like I want it, it always. And they aren't, they aren't making any more. There's nothing, mm. I don't think there's anything like this in the archives. I feel again. No more hidden uh, archives. No. I feel like it's going to be a, uh, something I return to, though, because there's a lot in it and it's almost, a, you know, this is you know my earlier point about it being slow cinema. I think that you could return to this and or have it on in the background. Like I feel like you, it's just like being in a recording, well, you are being in a recording studio with these, you know, musical masterminds. It's kind of a wonderful space to stay in and not that slow cinema always goes there. Usually it can be kind of frustrating in the slowness, but... I feel like this is one I would definitely return to. Um, the Beatles' Get Back by Peter Jackson is currently streaming on Disney+. Plus. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford and my guest for tonight, filmmaker Jack Ralph and film reviewer Will Cox. 
we spoke with writer Chris Dyett about his article, What Draws Us to the Reactionary Darkness of June, which was featured in the Jacobin magazine and you can read it at jacobinmag.com or you can actually just head to our socials because we've, we've shared it as well. You can go to at primal underscore screen underscore show for Instagram or at underscore, oh, sorry, at primal underscore screen for Twitter or just head to our Facebook page. Uh, for next week's show, we're going to be doing a countdown of our favourite films from the year, um, which I think I'm trying to think of what I've watched. I've had to, I'm usually pretty good at keeping a, um, a little spreadsheet because Paul is so adamant about this poll every year. So um, if you want to tune in and get some hot tips about what you should have, what you may have missed this year or what you want to check out before the year comes to an end, make sure you tune in to next week. Um, well, uh, big thank you to our guest, Chris Dyche, and our special reviewers, Jack Ralph and Will Cox. Um, it's so lovely having you both on. It was really, it was really fun, yeah, and peace and love. It totally peace was. And love, peace and love. Peace and love. <laughs> I, can't, I actually just realised there's so many similarities between the two films we talked about, you know, both 60s, both um, very much about young men finding themselves, like you said, Will. and Called Paul. Yeah, yeah called Paul. <laughs> I realised all these zingers I could have had during the show and missed opportunities. <laughs> But there's lots of yeah, there's lots going on there. Um, yeah, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. I feel like these both these films, uh, the Beatles Get Back and also June, could be you know an episode on their own right. It was actually it was really good being able to debrief with you both on those because I yeah, there's just a lot to unpack and I I feel like with these things people care very passionately about the Beatles and they also care very passionately about June. So I'm sure. We've got lots of people listening who are um, either worried that we're going to, you know, drag them through the mud or something like that, something horrible. Well, if any, if any listeners uh, want to talk more about the Beatles, just find me in the street and just <laughs> flag me down, and we can just chat for a few, a few hours. So. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 